0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. Good morning everyone. Good to see you today. We have been talking about this amazing gift of life and in particular the surprising opportunity that God gives us to co-create new life with him. But as amazing as life is, it is easy, and I'll admit for me, it's easy to become kind of numb at the at the loss of human life that we hear about. Uh, around the world in any given week. Seems like every week, almost every day, we hear of more tragedies, more loss of human life. Uh, for example, you know, the war in Ukraine, it's now in its second year, and just every report talks about how many people are dying uh, as a result of that war. And then there was the earthquake in Turkey and Syria uh, last month, where I think it was over 30,000. Uh, people died, and that number kept going up. That, that's out of the news cycle now, and so we've kind of moved on to other tragedies that we're hearing about. But these deaths are so far away, and there's so many of them, and the, the, the bad news seems like it just keeps on coming. And so it's easy to get kind of numb about the loss of human life. But I saw a couple of images um, last month that, that really got to me from both of these areas, The first image was of a Ukrainian uh, girl uh, putting on a bulletproof vest and a helmet so she could go outside. And she's about the age of one of my granddaughters, and it just, I mean, it just got to me thinking she shouldn't live in a place where she has to put this on just to walk outside. Uh, another image that got to me. This one from uh, Syria was the sight of this baby that was born under the rubble. Maybe you saw this this little one that miraculously survived not only the earthquake, uh, but was born under the rubble there in Syria before the baby was rescued. And just seeing that little one, I mean, it just it just got to me. And I think many of us are like that. It's the sight of of defenseless children that in the middle of all the tragedy in the world, still, still really provokes deep emotion in us. And the reason is because we all have this sense that children should be protected. They, they should be cared for. Life is fragile, but young life is particularly fragile. So we have this, this sense that it, it must, must merit a greater sense of protection. I mean, if you talk to most parents about their children, you'll discover the obvious fact that nothing is more precious Than their children. And what that means is they'll do almost anything to protect them. They they would never knowingly put their child in harm's way or neglect their needs. So we all know that children must be protected if they're going to survive childhood and grow up to thrive in adulthood. And even if a child does survive trauma, we realize that even if they physically survive, the trauma often just goes with them. This is why children are so valuable and need to be protected. But our children are facing a grave risk, and it's not from bullets, it's not from earthquakes, it's from a lie. It's a lie that's taken hold in our culture that I want to address this morning. And this is the lie. The lie is that children can flourish under any number of different arrangements. As long as there's someone, it really doesn't matter who, as long as there's someone there who cares about the child, then the child will flourish. But God has designed one particular arrangement, an ideal arrangement for the care of children, to give them the best protection, the best chance to grow and to flourish, and that is a family with a mother and a father and a commitment to each other in marriage. We call this the nuclear family, the term originated because of how central the family is to the future of life and to every culture, every society. And there, of course, are many reasons why children are raised outside of a nuclear family. Uh, The death of parents, divorce, these cause children to grow up in less than ideal conditions. And so in a broken world, we know that the ideal is not always our experience. And that's why we all need God's grace and help to navigate in this broken world. But if we don't start telling the truth about God's ideal design, I think more children are going to continue to pay the price for this lie. Now, this lie exists because it is needed to support a lie that preceded it. The lie that precedes the the lie about children is that sex is for us, that it's really selfish. The purpose of sex is for me, for you. And when sex became selfish, it automatically had to change our thinking about the care of children because one of the results of sexual activity is children. And if sex is going to be selfish and children are require a tremendous amount of sacrifice, then we're going to have to rethink how it is that we think children can be raised. Now, selfish sex focuses on a person's feelings and, and what's in it for them. What is it that brings that person pleasure? becomes the point. What it is that they want becomes the most important point. Now, there's no denying the pleasure that sexual activity brings. It is a part of the gift of God in the form of new life. But personal pleasure, personal needs, personal interests, personal desires are not the primary point of sex. The the pleasure is a secondary component. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, God identifies the purpose of sex. In the context of this book, the the people are asking the prophet Malachi why the last several decades have been so hard. The economy is in shambles. um, There's been a drought. uh, And the men particularly are asking, what is going on? Why are things so bad? And so in these verses, God reveals to the prophet Malachi the why behind life being so bad. Here's what we read in Malachi 2:14 through 15. You ask, why? It is because the Lord is acting as, a witness, as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her. Though she is your partner. The wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? Speaking of the husband and wife. In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. So the question is, why is it that God made men and women to fit together as one in the act of sex? He points out that sex really has two major components to it. There is the one in flesh part, the, the physical part, but there is also the one in spirit part. It's not just a physical, it's not just biology. There's a personal component that's involved in this. So what is God's purpose in the complexity of sexual activity? Well, the purpose, as he says, why one? Why sex? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Children is what God intends through the act of sex. Not every act, of course. That's impossible. We have far more sex than we do children. But the reason sex... Is designed by God to be so pleasurable and so relational is so that a man and a woman wouldn't just have sex for their own pleasure but so that they might have sex and have children and not just any kind of children godly children God says what that means is children who grow up to live God referenced lives for them God and what he says is the compass of their soul That's what a godly child is. Not a perfect child, but a child that lives a God-referenced life. And the ideal condition for raising godly children involves these three elements. A godly mother, a godly father, and a binding contract, a marriage. That's what it says, the wife of your marriage covenant. Covenant means contract before God. Not just a social contract. Not just a legally binding contract, it is that, but it is far more than that. It is a contract that was stated, promises made in the presence of God. So we're going to look at these three elements this morning to remind ourselves or inform ourselves of this arrangement that God says children thrive in. The first thing children need is a mother. Now this is obvious, every child needs a mother for two reasons, biologically and personally. Body and soul. Now, we all know that mothers pay a much higher physical price than fathers do to come up with a a new child. Like the men, like the fathers, the mothers do offer genetic material, but their contribution doesn't end there. It begins there. If the new life that's begun is going to grow and be born, they are going to have to carry it for nine months. And we all know this, but not carry it like a grocery bag. Carry it in their bodies. And this new life will basically take over their bodies and will change them. And for many women, even after that child is born, they bear some evidence of the impact of carrying that child on into the future physically. They pay a tremendous price. So there's no question about who pays the higher price for a child to be born. Women do. I think this is why Mother's Day is such a bigger deal than Father's Day. We kind of know, okay, let's make a big deal about the moms. Thanks, Dad, but let's make a big deal about the moms because they've really paid a price. And if you consider the price that women pay in comparison to the price that men pay in order for children to be born, one of the first thoughts you probably have is, that's just not fair. It really isn't. It's not fair at all. And in our culture right now, fairness is kind of the only moral left. And so in the name of equity, around 600,000 unborn babies are aborted each year to make it more fair. But of course, that creates an even greater injustice. A child that is at their most vulnerable state has their life ended. In most cases, literally, a heartbeat is stopped. Now, we know it's a hot topic right now. It's called a woman's right to choose or reproductive health care. But there is no way to justify the ending of a precious life. That's why, for years, we have partnered with the group that Steve mentioned, Horizon Pregnancy Center. Because women are vulnerable. They pay a higher price. Not every pregnancy occurs in ideal conditions. And this organization that we partner with locally, they help women who are pregnant and vulnerable. And in doing so, they save the lives of hundreds of children who would never have been born. This last year, they were able to save 623 lives, children, who would not be here if it wasn't for the help and the support that they provided. So, if you are considering an abortion, or if you are dealing with the guilt of an abortion in your past, this group is so helpful. They have so many resources. This is why we partner with them. And this is why, like, we do events like we're going to do, as Steve mentioned, on March 24th, where we're hosting a baby shower to help <clears throat> these moms who are expecting and who have decided to pay. The high price of carrying this new life to birth. Now, for kids who survive the uterus, the sacrifices required to raise this new life are not over. Children go on to have more needs. They rob us of sleep. They cost now an estimate over $300,000 a year. I don't know where they get that number, but that's the estimate right now. You can look it up. But, of course, we know the needs of children go far beyond uh, the biological needs, the, the physical needs, the things that money can buy. Those are real needs. But the needs of every child goes far beyond that. And men and women contribute to those needs. They not only have unique genetic contributions to make to the biology of a child, they also, men and women, also have unique gender contributions to make to the character of a child. And this is something that in our culture has been forgotten or or maybe never really understood. And so I'd like to look at this this morning. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, who was the first century church planter and wrote much of the New Testament, writes to a group of new Christians that he uh, has helped. And he refers to his experience with them as both like a mother and like a father. He says, I treated you in some ways like a mother and then I kind of switched and I treated you in some ways like a father. And it's a fascinating description. The detail is fascinating about the description of the differences that women offer a child from what men offer a child. Moms and fathers offer something very different. And this is why this is God's ideal arrangement because we really thrive if we benefit not just from the genetics of a father and the genetics of a mother, but from the presence of a father and the presence of a mother. So the detail is very informative. So here's what he says in First Thessalonians 2, 6 through 9. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked day and night. So he's describing how his care for them was like a mother, a mother's care for her child. And he uses three words to describe what mothers do best. These are the three words. First one is gentle. He says, we were gentle among you. Now, as I describe each of these, don't go to extremes. This doesn't mean that men don't have to be gentle. Men don't get a pass on being gentle with their children. It's just we're not that good at it. We're not near as good at it generally as the mothers are. Dads tend to be a little rougher with kids than moms. I mean, when my daughter was little and was crying because of all the gas, I figured out how to carry her in a football way. So I'd I'd put her here her little head would be right there and I'd be banging on her back until She burped or projected all over something, (laughs) but not me. My wife was always nervous whenever I'd walk around with her like this, just carrying her like a football. I never dropped her, but my wife was nervous about it. She never carried my daughter that way. And then as our two got older, I mean, I was the one who would throw the kids up in the air and swing them around upside down. My wife never did that. She was physically capable of doing it. She just never wanted to do that. I saw them, I thought, let's throw them. <laughs> that generally doesn't occur to mothers to do that. Now, the way dads are is, is appropriate in some ways. It, it has a place in the life of a child, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But if it was up to the men, the home environment would not supply the right amount of gentleness that children really, really need. So let me define gentleness. Gentleness is compassion and patience in the face of weakness and failure. This is so important because failure, it turns out, is a critical part of growth. Whether it's learning how to walk or whether it's learning how to read or whether it's growing in character, learning how to ask forgiveness, you don't just get the lesson and start doing it. You, you try it and then you fail and you have to get back up and try it again. And if at the point of failure, kids are greeted with rejection and harshness rather than compassion and patience, what will happen? They'll stop risking. They'll decide, you know, it's just not worth it. I'm not going to try that because I keep failing, and I keep be, I, I'm met not with gentleness but with rejection. They'll stay in their comfort zone, and they'll, they won't grow as much as they could. So mothers help create an environment where it's okay to fail. You will be accepted. You will be loved. Now, fathers need to do the same thing, but dads struggle with that a little more, generally. Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What is exasperation? We have a feel for it. What does it mean? Exasperation occurs when a child gets the sense that they just can't ever measure up. No matter what they do, it's not good enough And so why is this verse addressed to fathers? Why is it picking on the dads? Because we struggle with this. We tend to identify what needs to be done and what needs to be fixed and changed, and and we say something about that, and eventually our kids are just like, oh, they're exasperated. The idea is that the wind goes out of them. They stop trying. It's what fathers tend to do. That's why children really need mothers. Fathers need to grow and learn in this, but mothers really help keep this on the front burner, this gentleness thing. Second quality that mothers often bring in the home is caring, like a mother caring for her children. The New Testament was written in the Greek language, and the Greek word here that's used means literally to warmly brood over. And it speaks of the attentive care of a mother. Moms hover over their children, and they're attentive to every little need. They can sense things. Dads, not so much. If something's going on in the child, and this isn't just when the child's a newborn. That's evident when it's a newborn. But even as the child gets older, the moms just seem to sense when something's off, when something's needed. The dads can sense that, but not as much. This is why mothers tend to worry more about their children, because they can see more. This hovering requires a lot of time, a lot of thought. This is why Paul says, we, when he's speaking of how he was like a mother, he says, we work day and night. That's what mothers do. Even as our economy has changed and there are more moms in the workforce, all the studies continue to show the moms still, just still put in more time. Than the dads. Dads are getting better, but moms are they they care. And, th- and that's important because children have day and night needs. Your children don't schedule their needs and appointments so that you can map out your week. That's why you need someone there to hover. I mean, you can schedule feeding eventually and, and meals, you know, when your child's hungry but you don't necessarily know when they're gonna have a crisis or when there's gonna be need on the inside. And again, my wife was the one that, not every time, but more times than me would notice something's going on that needs to be addressed. You see, we're, we're not just animals that need physical development, you know, need to learn how to fly or hunt or walk, and then we can be done with and we're off on our own after a few months or a couple years. It, it takes us you know, a couple of decades before we're ready to be on our own. Because it's not just physical development that's needed. We have souls, and character needs to be tended to and dealt with. And that just that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of hovering, a lot of conversations, a lot of awareness, a lot of questions. That requires detailed attention. So in the form of years of a child, most of the hovering is physical. You know, just sitting with the child, holding the child, rocking the child. You know, when our first uh, daughter was born, we bought a rocking chair. And my wife spent so many hours in that rocking chair just with my daughter falling asleep on her. I tried it. I'd get in that rocking chair, and I'd, I'd be good for about five minutes, and I'd be like, all right, can I do something while I do this? Can I accomplish something else? Can I? I just have a harder time hovering. So in the formative years, it's more physical hovering. Latter years, the hovering is, is more in thought and conversation. The, the third descriptor of what moms offer is promoting. Paul says, we loved you so much. Again, the Greek word here is very helpful to understand what kind of love this is talking about. You may have heard that in the English language, we only have one word for love, love. But in the Greek language, there's lots of different words for love. And this particular word is the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament. And it means the kind of love that promotes. This is what mothers do. Mothers are always in the corner of their children cheering them on. In fact, as a child gets older, at some point it begins to dawn on them that maybe their mom's applause is not entirely objective. I mean, this is why if someone's on stage and someone hollers out a compliment, the person on stage will often say, thanks, Mom. I've never heard anyone say, thanks, Dad, because dads would never do that. But the mom is just like, yeah, son, yeah, daughter, you can do it. They're, they're the promoters. Mothers are always in the corner of their children cheering them on. This is why if you get between a mother and her child, you will encounter teeth, not gentleness. Something threatens the future of her child, watch out. This is why when a mother sees that something needs to be done to promote their children, she will get pretty aggressive. This is also why as the children get older and they grow up and they begin to make their decisions, if those decisions are not good decisions, it's the moms that really struggle with that. The dads struggle too. But for the moms, it just feels like death. Because they're their promoters. And they see their child doing something that's gonna damage them and, and diminish their life in some way. And they don't know how it's gonna work out. And all they want to do is clap and now they're like, oh no. Because they are the promoters. It's a good thing that our, our two kids had my wife in their corner. Because I I love my kids. But it just didn't occur to me how much promotion they needed. So the need for a mother is obvious. What about fathers? In our culture, there's a growing understanding of what masculinity is, and therefore the great benefit of the presence of fathers. So number two, children need a father. So next, Paul shifts gears and explains how he's been like a father. 1 Thessalonians 2, through 12, the next two verses. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Three words. We exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged you. What do those mean? First, exhort. Again, the Greek language, which is what the New Testament is written in. This, this Greek word here is, is a two-part word. The prefix means to draw near, to get close to the person, in this case, the child. The father draws near to the child and and the purpose is the root of this word is to incite the child with words, to to generate movement with your words, to get them moving with words. Oftentimes, my wife would come to me exasperated and say, can you talk to them? This happened over and over again in our home why well she'd already tried to talk to them and for some reason it wasn't getting through and so part of it was your turn but part of it was my words generally seemed to have more weight with our kids now don't get me wrong our two could ignore me just like they could her but my words carried a little more weight why was I louder? Not generally. No, because like all men, I've been given an assignment from God that requires my words to have weight. doesn't mean the words of women don't have any weight. It just means that God's got a different thing in mind when men speak. In Genesis 127, a verse that we looked at a few weeks ago, where God says he created us male and female, he chose a particular Hebrew word to describe what male is. And it's a very interesting word. The Hebrew word for male literally means the remembering one. That's what it means, the remembering one. So when God called us men, He's calling us the remembering ones. What are we supposed to remember? Where our keys are? I hope that wasn't the key assignment, you know, or where everything is in the house? Oh man, that's not good. Our anniversary, that would be helpful. But that's not the kind of remembering that God assigned to men. Our primary task is to remember and speak the words of God. If you look at how sin entered into the world, it entered into the world when Eve ate of the the forbidden fruit. Where was Adam? We are told in the next verse, Adam was standing right there with her. And what was he doing? Nothing. What was he saying? Nothing. He had been called a remembering one. He was the one that God said, hey, don't eat of that tree. And in the moment, he lost his voice. He lost his memory. And sin entered into the world. The same thing occurs in families now. When the men don't know God's truth and don't speak God's truth, the families really struggle. We are to exhort in line with God's truth. second word, encourage. This is also a two-part Greek word. The the prefix is the same as the previous one. It means to draw near. So the important thing for dads is to draw near to their kids. But the root of this word is muthos, from which we get myth. Now, myths are stories, ancient stories that were created to help people make sense of their daily life. So what does drawing near and telling a story have to do with encouragement? When we get discouraged, it's because our life has no purpose. And what stories do is they take the individual pages of our life and they put them on a plot line that makes sense. Now this day, my life is a part of something bigger. It fits into a larger story. We encourage when we help someone see that their life has a larger purpose. We do this, as fathers, by telling our children the true myth, the true story of what God is doing and how their lives can be a part of the great story. Now the question for dads is not can you tell a great story, but are you living the great story? Is the plot line bigger than just you? Are you sacrificing your time and your money to build God's kingdom? Is your life a part of the pages of the great story? For me, I was, um, I was an angry teenager. And the reason, now looking back, I can understand better, I, I was struggling to find my place. As a lot of adolescents are, they're trying to figure out where do I fit in this world? Who do I belong? And there's a lot of rejection. And so I, I was angry. Not everywhere, but primarily at home. I would argue with my parents all the time. And one of the moments that my dad encouraged me was at a point when I was arguing with him. I don't remember the argument, but I was upping the ante as you do in an argument. And finally I said to my father, who was very committed to Christ and loved the Bible, I told him, I said, I think the Bible is the most boring book I've ever read. Now, at that point, I actually did think that. But I said it to hurt him. And I'll never forget this. He, he teared up, and he looked at me, and he said, Bevan, you have a great mind. I dread arguing you because I can't keep up. I wonder if someday God will use you and your mind to help people understand how amazing this book is. And I, I'll never forget that. He drew near to me, and he told me, a great story, and he dreamed that I might be a part. And I believe that's partly why I'm doing this today. Don't underestimate the power that the words of a father can have in the life of their child. The third word is charge. This means to declare solemnly in the presence of a witness. A witness makes something weighty. I mean, how, mo- how many movies have we watched that contain the scenes of a child at an event, maybe a concert? They're on stage, maybe they're on the field to play, you know, little league, and they're looking in the stands. Who are they looking for? Dad. In almost every situation, they're looking for dad, and then their countenance drops, their shoulders drop. Why? Dad said he was going to be there, he's not there. So many movies. That cared. I can't, maybe there is, but I can't think of a movie where they were looking for mom and she wasn't there. Why? She's already there. But dad wasn't there. It's the presence of dad that tells a child that they really matter and what they're doing really matters. Now, it would be great if we could all independently decide that our life matters, but that's just not the way we are. We need outside confirmation. We need a witness to confirm the fact that we're important and what we do matters. No one has a bigger vote on this than Dad. Moms vote on this, but because she's the promoter, we kind of take that vote eventually as a given. Okay, Mom thinks I'm great. Okay. Of course. That's what moms do. But if Dad thinks we matter and he votes with his presence and his words in our life, that's huge so many people move into adulthood with the big question because dad never said anything or didn't say enough. And they end up building a life to try to prove themselves to who? Their dads. And so if we don't get the approval of dad growing up, we really struggle to try to earn it and prove ourselves for the rest of our lives. So children need a mother, they need a father. Lastly, they need a contract they need a marriage that's why it says the wife of your marriage covenant children are the future we know this and that's why every society that survives places a great value on the well-being of the kids because without them there is no future so how does marriage protect children marriage is a binding legal agreement it can be broken of course and it is but it is costly to break The purpose of our legal institutions, in part, is to enforce the agreements that are made between us. If people can make agreements and break them easily, then society is going to unravel. So the stability that is needed to raise children into adulthood rests on the stability of the first institution, marriage. Now, it's not that the kids can't survive without a marriage. No, God's grace can help. Overcome the damage that's done by divorce or the death of parents. It's that marriage is God's primary design for the raising of children. So if you are struggling in your marriage and you're contemplating divorce, don't do it. I don't know the situations, but don't do it. You have no idea how much your children need all three. Not just if they're at home, even after they're gone. They are looking to you. So get the help you need. And if you need help, you're in the right place. If you're dealing with a divorce, if you're a single parent, if you're raised by a bad father, a bad mother, no father, no mother, the church of Jesus Christ is the answer for brokenness. I mean, these verses that I read from the Apostle Paul are about the experiences that people had, not in families, but in the church at Thessalonica. The Apostle Paul is saying, This is what you experienced here. You experienced the love of a mother, you experienced the affirmation and love of a father in this church. This is where the wreckage of broken families can be put together by the grace of God. This is where single parents can get help and find role models. Their children. This is where marriages can be helped. This is where broken lives can experience transformation in Christ. So, your life is an amazing gift. You were created in the image of God. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about this there are no ordinary people, you have never talked to a mere mortal. This is an amazing gift, and we have the great opportunity to value that gift and treat that gift as God intended. Let's do that, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for our lives. I thank you for the life of every person here. Whether they feel valuable or not, God, I pray that they would come to understand of how precious they are how unfathomably valuable they are to you and to others. God, I pray that you would help us steward the gift of life. Pray for all the little ones that are around this church that are right now in the new building. God, I pray for the parents of these little ones that you would help them um, play their roles. I Pray for families that are struggling and broken. God, you'd help us to help them through your grace. We thank you for your kindness to us and for the days of life you've given us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.